Well, we should have our Bibles open up to Isaiah chapter 51. We looked in detail at chapter 51 verses 1 through 16 on Sunday, so we'll move quickly through it. We'll start off again in verse 1 though. Um, Remember, this is God speaking to a righteous remnant who would be, though they were not at the time of Isaiah speaking, there would be a remnant in the midst of the greater population of Israelites in captivity in Babylon, the Lord would call, and he would call the whole nation to come out, but not many would come. And so he is speaking to them and calling them to go forward in a call on their lives to go back to Israel. A bit of a venture of faith there, right, that we talked about on Sunday. He says, Listen to me, you who follow after righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and the hole of the pit from which you were dug. Look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who bore you. For I called him alone and blessed him and increased him. Uh, We talked about this, you know, again, they would be be intimidated by a lot of the challenges in front of them. And um, the Lord is calling them to remember where they came from, that they had started from one man and one woman out of uh, not a very glamorous beginning. And despite that, using average, very average, ordinary people, as they uh, gave their lives to obey the Lord and follow him, he did amazing things with them. So those who would be coming out of uh, captivity in Babylon could look at how much the Lord could do with just one man, one woman. And so they would be able to draw a great amount of encouragement to go forward as you know, a small population came out and returned to Israel. He would have no problem blessing them and taking care of them. So that's one of the big issues, I think, for anybody who wants to go forward in the Lord, is what the Lord is calling them to do here, and that is to draw some lessons from your past, your history with the Lord that you know of. Look to where he has been faithful in the past and learn from that so that you be confident in his faithfulness in the future. You know, that was one of the Israel's big failures, right, is... You know, they're noted for about three big failures. One of them was the failure to go into the promised land. And uh, at that point, they were supposed to have had enough depth of experience with the Lord in seeing his power deliver them out of Egypt and uh, provide for them completely in the wilderness. So when they got up to the promised land, it would be just a small step to continue that, that trust in the Lord, you know, based on what they already knew about him. But they got to that point... And as if they didn't know anything about the Lord, they, you know, they chose not to go in. And so it was one of their great failures um, to learn nothing from a history of following the Lord and finding him faithful. So um, we don't want to be like that. We don't, it's one of their great examples of failure put out before us. So verse 3, For the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. He will make her wilderness like Eden. And her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in it. Thanksgiving and the voice of melody. Again, they were facing a great deal of hardship and going back to a place that was basically ruins. The Lord is saying, I'm going to restore it. And you're going to be in the middle of what I'm doing. So again, for those who want to follow the Lord, it certainly is a great desire to be in the middle of what he's doing. And being investing in what the Lord is doing. And um, so he's calling him there to do that. And that's always a great way to, to uh, look at um, our own opportunity to cooperate in the kingdom and what the Lord is doing. Where is he working? Invest there. Verse 4, he says, Listen to me, my people, and give ear to me, O my nation. For law will proceed from me, 
And I will make my justice rest as a light to the peoples. My righteousness is near. How important is that? My salvation has gone forth. Man, there's a lot of promises for the future, but look what he says is right here, right now. Salvation and righteousness is near, right here, right now. And that's, again, central to what they were being called to do. Remember, the call upon Israel was to go and be a light to the whole world and to be a witness that God wanted to bless man and to be right in, his, right in the middle of everybody's life. And Israel is supposed to be a witness of that, of how good it was to, to serve and love this God and obey him. But more than that, also, they're going to be the ones through whom the Savior of the world is going to come. So their obedience has a great deal of far-reaching effect. And um, they're supposed to keep that in mind. My righteousness, salvation, right here, right now. And, that, and that's important to whatever we're doing for the Lord, right? When we're choosing to, to obey the Lord and get involved in ministry or do something, keeping the gospel of Jesus Christ right in the middle of what we're doing, whether it's kids' ministry or, uh, you know, cleaning or yard work. You know, uh, we're doing those things so that people can come and be comfortably seated in the pews and be undistracted and it's clean and it's warm and so that, you know, the lights are on and the things are on, the cameras and stuff and... Uh, so that they can hear that Jesus loves them and died for their sin. And so um, he says, And my arms will judge the peoples, the coastlands will wait upon me, and on my arm they will trust. That's an interesting phrase, that my arm. You go back to, um, no, it's in, it's in the forward, it's in forward. We'll pick this up. Watch that as there's a call for his arm to work. I'm out in front of myself there. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look on the earth beneath, for the heavens will vanish away like smoke, and the earth will grow old like a garment, and those who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will not be abolished. Uh, Take note of that phrase, the earth will grow old like a garment, and those who dwell in it will die in like manner. Uh, You know, the opportunity to become a citizen of heaven is the issue there, right? That's what their obedience is um, saying. I'm, an, I'm, I'm a citizen of a kingdom of another realm, heaven. And uh, so uh, we're not worried. Those who are in that kingdom not worried about the future of the world. We know where it goes and we know, it's, know what happens to it. And we're going to be safely uh, stowed away in the Lord's will. But those who, again, invest their entire being in the world, well, the world is passing away. Right, like it says in First John, the world is passing away, and and all the things in it reminds me of that old colloquialism: uh, only one life will soon be passed; only for what's done for Christ will last. Again, that's important for them going forward and coming out of Israel, looking forward to what the Lord was doing, investing in the enduring things that the Lord is doing. So, verse seven: Listen to me, you who know righteousness. You people in whom, in whose heart is my law, do not fear the reproach of men, nor be afraid of their insults. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. You know, people's opposition, of course, to the Lord's work is as old as the world, and as old as the fall. 
just one of those spiritual dynamics that we have to be aware of as we grow in the Lord. Some people who don't understand and don't realize that we have their best in mind as we preach the gospel to them are going to oppose us. And so we look at that from a spiritual standpoint, a spiritual eyes, the greater light of the New Testament, and we realize they're not the problem. The whole world lies under the sway of the, of the wicked one. You know, that opposition really is, and that position of insulting us, slandering us, is so, so temporary and so just nothing compared to what is going on with, uh, you know, the Lord behind us and, and, and rewarding us and sending us. Those, all those insults and things, he, he likens it here, a moth will eat them up, you know, it's just like nothing. He says, but my righteousness will be forever and my salvation from generation to generation. And uh, those were three listens, right? Verse 1, verse 4, verse 7. Now we come to three awakes. And the first one is, is towards the Lord. Again, those who were going forward in this venture of faith um, would call on the Lord um, as anybody wants to in going forward in the Lord. Boy, Lord, I really want you to show up strong. So here's what they say. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. A call for the arm of the Lord. <clears throat> you know, the, the Lord is given some anthropomorphisms here. You know, the Lord, don't make the mistake of taking these kinds of these phrases literally, like, like God the Father has an arm that you could measure. Um, that's not it. Uh, he is a spirit, right? This is just a call for a strong, invisible, outward working of the Lord. Things that they had, had seen in days gone by, they want him to come and show up that way again. Awake as in the ancient days, in the generations of old. Are you not the arm that cut Rahab apart? Rahab would be kind of a code word, a representation of Egypt in the Exodus, and wounded the serpent, again, of, of Egypt. Are you not the one who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, that made the depths of the sea a road for the redeemed to cross over? Again, the standard of power in the Old Testament was the exodus of Israel coming out of Egypt. Um, that's, the, that's the thing they always refer to when our God is full of power. He, you know, he parted the Red Sea. He brought us out of Egypt. In the New Testament, the standard of power is referred to in Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And the same power that raised Jesus from the dead right, is, in work, is at work in us who believe. So the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness. Sorrow and sighing flee away, flee away, shall flee away. Um, you know, looking down the road towards the ultimate fulfillment of these things, the nation of Israel, when it's brought to its, its highest fulfillment in the will of the Lord in the millennium. So that's their call, verse 9, 10, 11, to the Lord to show up. So here's the Lord's response. He says, I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you should be afraid of a man who will die and of the son of man who will be made like grass? And you forget the Lord your maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. Again, this is hearkening back to uh, don't fear the reproach of men. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, uh, you know, it's, it's easy to get great, grounded again in how powerful the Lord is when we get into situations, any situation, and that is to just look around at the creation. You know, it's here, it got here somehow, and Scripture says he spoke and it was, and then it continues 
in all the natural processes that we know and can quantify and measure in things, they all continue that way because he sustains them moment by moment. And that's power. And so uh, don't be afraid of these very uh, temporary obstacles. You have feared continually every day, middle of verse 13, because of the fury of the presser when he has prepared to destroy. And where is the fury of the presser? The captive exile hastens that he may be loosed, that he may should not die in the pit, and that his bread should not fail. In other words, um, okay, this guy's got a big mouth, and he's spouting off a lot of stuff, and the people under his control would love to get away right now. And he says this, But I am the Lord your God, who divided the sea, whose waves roared. The Lord of hosts is his name. I have put my words in your mouth. I have covered you with the shadow of my hand, that I may plant the heavens, lay the foundation of the earth, and say to Zion, you are my people. You know, he's, he's comparing Mr. Trash Talk to what the Lord has, is doing. And it's just no comparison to the power of the Lord. And so that would, that would just calling them to be very bold, very fearless, not to be arrogant about or anything like that, but to, not to be afraid of people. When they, uh, when they come out in opposition to uh, what the Lord is doing. You know, persecution really is a badge of honor when you look at it properly. Blessed are those, Jesus said, Jesus, Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, and this is just something I think we're going to have to get used to more and more in the United States. You know, in a lot of places around the world, it is very dangerous to be a Christian, very, very real, you get baptized and you go to jail or your life is in danger. You certainly lose your family. Um, you know, the United States has its own form of persecution. Um, people lose their jobs over taking a stand for morality or speaking up against cultural trends. And, and um, you know, even now in the news, you can see that uh, uh, opposition is, is ramping up since the... Uh, um, awarding of civil rights status to uh, same-sex issues. You know, the dust has kind of settled from that. Uh, the next phase is to take that and now punish those who, um, who will vocally come out and stand in the way of that. And that's going on right now. You can check it out in the news. You know, the news is saying North Carolina is under attack for... for for what? For standing in front of, uh, you know, the LBGT, could I have those letters right? LGBTQ, five letters, rights to do whatever they want. And somebody says, no, you know, we prefer you not to do that. Well, you deserve to be punished. And so, um, you know, corporations are canceling expansions in North Carolina. Concerts are being canceled. And Missouri is now getting it too because they are in the same situation of passing some legislation against that whole restroom thing, you know. Okay, check it out. It's there. It's just the next step. It's, 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 it's on the rise. We're going to need to get used to it. Um, so anyways, okay, let's go back to the text. Uh, you know, verses 9 through 11 was a call on God to be as active as he once was, um, but God's saying in, in 12 through 16, you know, you tell me to wake. It's not me that needs to wake up. It's you. Uh, verse 17, he says, Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk at the hand of the Lord, the cup of his fury. Uh, you have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and drained it out. 
the imagery there is that because of their uh, wholesale, um, long-term disobedience to him uh, back in the land and their idolatry, their gross immorality, he was left with no, oppor- no choice but to chastise them. And, um, and that's, that's given the image of drinking out of a cup of trembling there. And uh, he's saying, okay, you have finished your drinking of that. That's over with. There is no one to guide her among all the sons she has brought forth, nor is there any who takes her by the hand among all those sons she has brought up. These two things have come to you. Who will be sorry for you? Desolation and destruction, famine and sword. By whom will I comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of all the streets like an antelope in the net. They are full of the fury of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. Therefore, please hear this, you afflicted. And drunk, but not with wine. Thus says your Lord, uh, the Lord and your God, who ple- pleads the cause of his people. See, I've taken, your, taken out of your hand the cup of trembling, the dregs of the cup of my fury. You shall no longer drink it, but I will put it into the hand of those who afflict you, who have said to you, lie down that we may walk over you, and you have laid your body like the ground, and as the street for those to walk over. Again, you know, the, the, the imagery there is that uh, the principle is that the Lord always begins to judge first his people. And then once he's done with them, he moves on to the world. And so uh, as Israel was chastised and brought into captivity, their, time, their big time time out is over. They're going back to Israel. And then he's going to deal with those who had uh, afflicted them and treated them very badly in that, um, in that, in that role that they played of uh, being a chastising agent from the Lord. They had taken their, their role way too far. And so, unfortunately, they were going to uh, be judged by the Lord. 52, he says, Awake, awake, put on strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For the uncircumcised and the unclean shall no longer come to you. Shake yourself from the dust, arise. Sit down, O Jerusalem, loose yourself from the bonds of your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. Again, the imagery of Jerusalem, uh, the nation of Israel personified. Uh, We saw it before, it was as a woman. And um, here she is, she's being released from her captivity. And uh, she's been told to get ready because the captives are coming back. It's going to be a beautiful thing, it's going to be a wonderful thing. For thus says the Lord, you have sold yourselves for nothing, and you shall be be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord, my people went down at first into Egypt to dwell there, and then the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Again, recounting their history, they were down in Egypt as a people, and then the Assyrian oppressed them without cause, a little bit later in their um, history. Now, therefore... What have I here, says the Lord, that my people are taken away for nothing? Those who rule over them make them wail, says the Lord, and my name is blasphemed continuously every day. Therefore my people shall know my name, therefore they shall know in that day that I am he who speaks. Behold, it is I. You know, the whole time they were in Babylon, they were mocked, and, you know, where's your God? Our God's bigger than your God, because we obviously won you know, there's that whole paradigm, that whole thinking in the Babylonians, the Chaldeans. And um, so now the Lord's saying, I'm going to straighten this out. 
and they're going to know that, uh, that all that boasting over you and over me is, uh, well, we're just going to straighten that out. And then he says this uh, in verses 7 through 10, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. Your watchmen shall lift up their voices with the voices they shall sing together, for they shall see eye to eye when the Lord brings back Zion. Break forth into joy, Sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Here's another theme, right? The, the arm of the Lord. The arm of the Lord was, is going to be seen when the captives come back to Jerusalem. And there would be probably messengers going ahead of them, right? Uh, the young, strong guys to go and make a hasty journey to Jerusalem. Let them know the captives are coming back. And the imagery there is, wow, those guys have the privilege of carrying a magnificent message that the Lord has, is working strongly. Here they come. And so the messengers, the message is beautiful. The messengers who have that privilege are, you know, we're so glad to see them, and even their feet, you know, it's so wonderful. Even, the, you know, the feet weren't very highly thought of, and they're still not in the Middle Eastern culture. They're considered your, your dirtiest part of your, your body. You know, we sit with our foot crossed, you know, like up like that. You did that in the Middle East, that'll get you killed. Um, you don't show anybody the bottom of your feet. That's very, very rude in the Middle East. But here they're saying, you know, even the lowliest parts of the messenger who brings such a beautiful message that the Lord is working and redeeming his people. Um, what a privilege to be that person. Well, well this, this gets picked up by, um, by Paul in Romans chapter 10 when he talks about the need for a preacher to go forth and proclaim the far better news of the, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that salvation has been provided for. He says in uh, Romans chapter 10, he says, verse 14, How shall they call on him whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him in whom, uh, of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Um, uh, you know, the thing that is happening is magnificent. The news is the best news that anyone can hear in the world, ever in their life. Um, and that is that the forgiveness of sins is a free gift. It's been provided for already by a Savior who has come and taken personal responsibility for the condemnation that's true and real about your life, about our lives. And um, the Savior has paid for it. And uh, just by putting your faith and trust in his death and his resurrection, a free gift of salvation is yours. 
that your sin is taken away. You're given perfect righteousness before him. And uh, so the messengers that get to bring that are very privileged people. And so uh, they, everything about them is magnificent in the eyes of the Lord. And even their feet, even your smelly feet, um, are, uh, are good with the Lord. You know, it says, um, it's part of the, part of the equipping, equipping of, the, uh, of the, the Christian worker, right? Their feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. They're outfitted completely, and, and it's a beautiful thing. Um, it says, the Lord has made bare his holy arm, this is our holy arm theme, in the eyes of all the nations. All the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. And so um, the arm is coming, and everybody's going to see it. Verse 11 and 12, again, is the restating of the um, need to leave Babylon. Depart, depart. Go out from there, touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her, be clean, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out with haste, nor by flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. So the call to leave, leave the place that is, uh, you're not supposed to be in. You're in an unclean place. Babylon was, was not where they're supposed to be. The time is up. Your timeout is over, you know, you ever had the timer, you know, for your kids, and the timer takes down, bing, it goes off, and they can go. That's the same thing here. And um, he's saying, okay, don't take anything from Babylon. Um, you know, you, you can take the person out of Babylon. He's saying, take the Babylon out of you, too, and don't bring any of that with you. Um, be clean, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. And then he says, you're not going to go out in a hurry. You don't need to run for your life. You don't need to be afraid. Um, the Lord of Israel will be your rear guard. You got nothing to fear. You don't got to dive for the door, dive out the window in some you know fearful, uh, you know, get out of here before they change their minds. No way. The Lord's got you covered, and you can rest in your departure and just enjoy the ride. And then we we. Uh, pick up uh, verse 13, chapter 52, um, as the fourth servant song, song of the suffering servant in the book of Isaiah, which is going to take us through the end of 53, which is uh, one of the most well-known scriptures uh, in the Bible, Isaiah 53. Um, you know, this has to be one of the worst chapter breaks in the scriptures. <laughs> uh, verse 13 has nothing to do with what came before, and um, it really does completely belong with the rest of 53, but um, there you go. Um, this talking, he says, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and very high. You know, these texts... Um, are some of the uh, uh, most quoted in the Old Testament. They are the most quoted in the old, uh, out of the Old Testament. These, this chapter here, um, between 13, 14, and 15, and rest of 53, there's over 40 times these texts are cited in the New Testament. Um, and if uh, this is the high point of the fifth gospel, if Isaiah can be looked at that way. It says, uh, My servant shall deal prudently, 
Um, that means he's always got wise actions. Um, you know, not in the sense of caution, like he's super safe, but he knows exactly what to do to bring about the intended results. Of course, you look at the life of Jesus. When was he ever wrong? When did he ever do anything not wisely? He was perfectly wise. Um, um, and, and though he's doing everything perfectly, yet um, if the outcome doesn't, doesn't show up perfectly, it's not his fault because he has acted prudently, perfectly. My servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and very high. Um, uh, these three verses go together. Um, there's five sets of three verses in this. Stanzas, if you want to call them. And uh, this one is about uh, the shocking appearances of the Lord. In certain places in his career, if you put some of the low point next to the high point, it's going to blow your mind. Each one. He is very wise, and this is what his wisdom is going to lead him to. He shall be exalted and extolled and very high. Um, um, the extremes of his ministry, he eventually, it's like they put the, his end point out in front of us. When he is ascended, risen and ascended to the right hand of the Lord and given the name above all names, and uh, he is seated at the right hand of God. There is nobody higher than Jesus of Nazareth in the world and in spiritual matters, nobody. But that's not the only place we see him because his story goes through, that's the end point. He says, just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. And that's a, a remarkable juxtaposition, his extolling to the right hand of God, and yet here he is in some point where he has been, um, he's, his, to look at him at that point is, is horror. Uh, of course, we know this to be the time um, of his crucifixion. The, the language here says uh, his visage was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Um, it doesn't mean that uh, he suffered more than any other human being. What it does mean is that he suffered disfigurement from being an individual, from belonging to human appearance. He was so chewed up that you wouldn't recognize him as human. Um, you know, you, you can in your mind's eye take just one 24-hour period. You know, the, before, the evening before he is crucified, he's with his disciples, he's around the temple, he's um, teaching there, he's in the upper room with his disciples, and then go forward 24 hours. Um, you know, the next morning... Uh, that that evening he will be arrested, right, in the Gethsemane. He's held overnight in some prison. And then um, the next morning he's run through a series of kangaroo courts. Um, and at the end of which he, uh, of course, says, uh, when they lock him under oath, 
when he's adjured, you know, by the high priest, he has to answer. He says, I am the son of God. And, uh, and of course, at that point, they accuse him of blasphemy. And so then the, uh, the abuse begins. Um, they begin to spit on him. Um, he is slapped. Um, he's then blindfolded and punched repeatedly. Um, he's led out then to Pilate, and uh, Pilate has him scourged to try to assuage the demands for him to be crucified. He, he has him scourged that maybe he'll be able to release him. Now, scourging was uh, something about, uh, from which many people died. Um, the the catanine tails, um, leather straps on a wooden dowel, those leather straps would be filled with bits of bone and uh, stones, and um, as uh, they were, um, as the the prisoner was um, chained with their hands up and their back exposed, they would be giving forty lashes with that up and down their their back from the bottom of you know about, about their knees up to their shoulders, and um, you can imagine the first few welts really. Uh, the first few strikes generate welts, and then the the uh, uh, bits of bone and the sharp little bits of uh, things begin to bite in and tear. And so, um, again, many people didn't survive that lashings, but that wasn't all he had. Um, he was then handed over to the soldiers, and uh, in, in their uh, garrison, they were given freedom to abuse him also, and they mocked him by uh, dressing him up in, you know, mock king clothes. And uh, they gave him their own special touch of a crown, of a, a lump of thorns on his head. And uh, after they got done um, mocking him, they took the stick that they had given him as a, as a um, uh, you know, mock scepter, and they hit him over the head with that and um, to drive that thing further into his head and, you know... Um, uh, then they also they also uh, beat him. In in chapter fifty, if you go backwards a little bit, we've learned something that we don't see in the Gospels. You go back to chapter fifty, verse six. He says, "I I gave my back to those who struck me." And we, we read about that. We don't read about the next sentence where it says, "And my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard." And uh, we don't have that recorded in the Gospel, but we have it told firsthand by Jesus there in the previous Suffering Servant song. And so um, at the end of that process, um, you wouldn't recognize him. So his form is uh, marred more than a man, more than the sons of men. And that's shocking, that's horror to look at. He says that's uh, verse 15, so he shall sprinkle many nations. You might have the word startle there in your translation. It's kind of split on whether the word is sprinkle or startle. Um, it seems to make more sense if it's sprinkling, because that's the word that's used um, back at the time of uh, Moses dedicating all the things that he needed to under the first covenant. It was sprinkled with blood and with um, the, the water of the ashes of a heifer, right? And so he shall sprinkle many nations. 
Many has the idea of all there. In other words, there's a lot of them. And kings shall shut their mouths at him. In other words, they are in shock at this. Because here's this person who's extolled and high, and yet look where he was. And he says, even kings are going to shut their mouths at this, for what had not been told them they shall see, and what they had not heard they shall consider. In other words, when they finally see it, it's going to be amazing to them, and there's going to be nothing to say about the guilt of humanity, a guilt of every person. And so um, the first stanza has kind of the extremes of his appearance. Chapter 53, verse 1 through 3 says, Who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The idea is there um, is that um, here's the story, and you know, uh, it's an amazing thing. And it's been faithfully transmitted, but nobody believes it. Uh, and it's, but it's not a commentary. The fact that nobody believes it isn't a commentary on the suffering servant, on Jesus. It's a commentary on those who are not believing. Who has believed our port? And who has the arm of the Lord? There's our arm of the Lord been revealed. Okay, so how is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. Remember the call for the awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord? Okay, here's the arm of the Lord in full strength. You know, you, you, before you get into any bar fight, right, you take a look at those guys' arms. And, uh, if his arms are bigger than yours, you might want to think twice about it. And here's the Lord saying, okay, he's rolling up his sleeves, and he's going to say, check this out. I got power. Here it is. He, first it's an individual, he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. Um, He's going to have very humble, ordinary uh, roots. He's going to just look like a normal normal old person. As a root out of dry ground, that there will be life. There'll be life that's coming out of a what is otherwise a dead thing. And Israel at that time, religiously, was a dead, dry, supposed to have been something else, but it was dead and dry system. And yet, here comes Jesus, here comes this servant, and it says, He has no form or comeliness, he has no appearance or handsomeness, he's average looking. And when we see him, there is no beauty, he's not handsome. That we should desire him. He's not, you know, in their history, they had times when they picked their king. And they wanted the guy who was the tallest, the best looking, great hair, great teeth, you know. And along comes the arm of the Lord, the anointed one that he's sending into the world. And he's totally average looking. There's nothing there that draws to him visually, but more than that. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. Now those sorrows and those griefs are not his, because look down at verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. And yet you see him in the material. He is, you know, he's grieved. He's, 
He's carrying the burden of mankind, of how far they have fallen, and the sorrow and the, and the misery of all that. <clears throat> and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. So there's the, there's the suffering servant. He comes, and he's an average-looking guy. And uh, in the midst of his, midst of who he is and what he's doing, his presentation, those who are looking at him, the words, the words there did not esteem him. The esteem word is an accounting word, and so when all is said and done, they summed him up as a zero. That's the material side of it. Verse four, four, five, and six is the third stanza. It says, "Surely he has borne our griefs." And carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. In other words, the things that he was going through looked like God had turned against him, but the real reason is that he was carrying our our problems. He was doing it for us. He was somebody's substitute, but he was wounded for our transgressions. It's literally, he was, the wound there is pierced through. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Look at what he's, going, he's getting in this exchange. Here's, the, the, here's really the explanation of what's happening with this, of the servant. Really, this is the explanation of uh, the whole New Testament, of what Jesus came to do. He is uh, receiving our griefs, our sorrows, our transgressions. Our iniquities is twice in the text there, those three verses. And then he gets our chastisement. What we get is peace, and we get healed. It says, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. First Peter, Peter explained it this way. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Um, you know, this is a central meaning of the gospel. One innocent substitute dies as a sacrifice for sin. For your sin, for my sin. Um, you know, this was the core of the Israeli uh, um, sacrificial system, right? I mean, that's, that's what they have been doing all along, is they would make themselves acceptable to God by a sacrifice. They would come to the door of the tabernacle or the temple, and they knew they were a sinner that needed to be restored to God. And they would be accepted because they brought an innocent sacrifice. And, and they were accepted not because they were right in themselves. They were accepted because the sacrifice was right. The sacrifice was flawless. And it was, a very, it was supposed to be a very personal thing. They were supposed to lay, uh, lay their hand on the head of that uh, lamb, that offering. And then that thing was killed. And it was, it was a... 
You know, it, uh, it was done humanely, but it was a bloody thing. It was nasty. They were supposed to collect the blood. You don't, you, the only way you can do it is by chaining the thing up and a slit in its throat. And it was supposed to be shocking. So um, that was what the Lord was saying is, look, I will, I will take a substitute. And so um, here's the suffering servant, and he is our substitute. And we're accepted, we're accepted not because we're right, but because he's right. Hebrews chapter 9 Not with the blood of bulls and goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So, um, uh, Jesus bore our sin on the cross. That's what he's saying. The servant will bear the sin of the world. Verses 7 through 9, uh, he picks up this afflicted state we've sought in verse 4. He bore our griefs and our sorrows. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Um, you know, the, the scriptures, uh, Matthew um, tells us that he was silent before Caiaphas, chapter 26. Chapter 27, he was silent before the chief priests and elders as they accused him and questioned him and brought false charges against him. He didn't say a thing. Chapter 27, Matthew um, and both John 19 says he was silent before Pilate until he was pushed, right? And he had to answer. Luke 23 tells you he was silent before Herod Antipas. He had nothing to say to him either. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. How interesting that he was called a lamb back here. For he was introduced to us in the New Testament as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Verse 8, he was taken away from prison and from judgment. Again, he was held overnight in prison till morning. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the, of the living. In other words, he is killed. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked. Again, we know the gospel. You're familiar with the story that uh, he was led out with two others to be crucified. Um, the, the, um, the chief priests didn't want it on the, uh, on the high feast day. They wanted to avoid that, but the scriptures must be fulfilled, and so Jesus was led out. And uh, two others were with him, and they were crucified, and he looks like an average guy being publicly executed in a very painful, humiliating fashion. They made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Verse 9, John um, 19 and Mark 15 tell us that when he had died on the cross, 
um, because it was a feast day, the um, chief priests asked that this execution process would normally take a couple of days, and they didn't want that to happen. They didn't want three days, five days on the cross while the feast was going on. So they asked Pilate to speed this process up. What they would do, of course, somebody who's crucified doesn't die instantly. They die from exposure. They die from uh, shock. They really die from uh, asphyxiation as they're, they're, they're hung out there. Um, from an engineering standpoint, you know, you're, you've got a fixed point over here with a cable and a fixed point over here with a cable, and then you've got a weight in the middle of your body. And um, uh, as uh, I, you know, I used to design a few cables when I was a civil engineer. I know that a little bit of force in the middle of that cable, those endpoints generate a huge, very quickly generate a lot of force in the horizontal direction, even though that, that middle force is pulling down, which is the body. And uh, you can't do that for very long. You can only do that a few times. And so uh, the tension it puts on your upper chest cavity uh, keeps you from breathing. Um, so uh, they, would, they would stay alive on the cross, and they'd have to push themselves up on the, on the nail that's through their, their ankle bones. And you can't do that forever. And eventually you asphyxiate and you die. But to, to speed that up, to keep them from clinging to, to life for three, four, five days, the, uh, they would come by with a large baseball bat, basically, and shatter the bones in, the, in, the, in your shin bones. And so you couldn't push yourself up anymore on those nails. And then so that asphyxiation would take place much more rapidly. Of course, Jesus was already dead when they came by and they broke the legs of the first one and the second one. When they came to Jesus, he was already dead. He already given up his... Spirit. He had the power to release his, his spirit, Scripture says. And so it tells us in Mark. Um, it says, Now when evening had come, because it was a preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went in to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Joseph Arimathea, probably a very prominent, super wealthy businessman. You don't go in to the Roman governor unless, you know, you've got the power and the and the access, and that's only to the rich. And so uh, he asked if uh, Pilate marveled that he was already dead, and summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. When they came around and they broke the legs of the first two, and they came to Jesus to verify that he was dead. They took a spear and ran it through him into his chest cavity. They obviously pierced his pericardium as they went up through the ribs and uh, they caught the the sack that's around the heart and then um, blood and water comes out. And that's, you know, the professional executioners. They know a dead body when they see it. He's dead. And so the report comes back up to the centurion. He's dead. But Joseph of Arimathea isn't alone. If you go over to John 19, it tells us a little more about that. It says, After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, verse 39, John 19, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, 
about 100 pounds. That's, very, that's a rich man's burial. These were common criminals around the crosses being taken down. Their bodies would just be thrown into a common grave. But, Je- but Jesus is being, his body is being taken by these very prominent wealthy individuals and treated with honor. And they're fulfilling the scriptures with the rich at his death back at Isaiah 53. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. And then verses 10 through 12 is the last stanza of our uh, suffering servant song, the fourth song. Because it gives us a heaven's view of this. It says, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. It didn't please him to do what he did to his son. It's not some sort of sick thing in the Lord's mind, wanting to peace people suffer. What it was pleasing to him was that you and I would be saved. That's what was pleasing to the Lord, is that our salvation would be worked out. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. I think this includes the resurrection. But go, if you go back up to um, the language here, it says, when you make his soul an offering for sin, is the you in your Bible capitalized? Okay, that obviously implies that that's the Lord. Well, the, the Hebrew didn't have capitalization like that, and so that's an English sort of contrivance. The you could go either way, and both of them, I think, are very fair. It could be that the Lord did see his soul and suffering, and um, made an offering for sin, right? But it could be a little why you and me, when we see it, when you understand that Jesus has been made the sacrifice, then he shall see his seed. Then you understand the spiritual realities. And the pleasure of his Lord shall prosper in his hand. Again, the pleasure of the Lord is that you be saved. And he shall see the labor... He shall prolong his days, I think, is a direct reference to his resurrection. How can his days be prolonged if he was killed? He has to be raised from the dead. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. I usually quote this when I'm doing communion up here. And I usually say, and by knowledge of him. Again, the knowledge there could go either way. It could be that... The knowledge is possessed by Jesus and that he knows the only way that you and I can be saved is if he pays for our sin. And so with that in hand, he goes forward in the will of the Lord and does what needs to be done. Maybe that's what it means. That's very fair. But it could be, and I think it uh, might be better to say that the Hebrew is better said to be it's knowledge of him. It's by knowledge of him that my righteous servant shall justify many. It's knowing that he has paid the sin penalty for you and for me and accepting that and understanding that it's true. That my life, your life, our lives do justify the Lord condemning us. But the Savior has, has taken that place and paid for it. That knowledge, if we accept it, trust it, then he shall justify us. The word justify there, by justify many, again, justify is to be made 
or found perfectly acceptable to the law. In no way is there anything that the law has to say against you. And so that's the transaction that the suffering servant is, is performing. He takes our sin. We get perfect righteousness. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. Okay, we read that. Verse 12, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. There's the reasons why he is great, right? Why he's been given the name above all names, because he was obedient unto death, even the death of a cross. And uh, he bought our salvation. And we're free because he died. And so that's our, uh, that's our suffering servant. That's our savior. If you don't know him today, that's a transaction that you can complete with a simple prayer. That you can ask the Lord to give you the benefits of what he accomplished on the cross. That you agree that you need a savior. And that he's it. It's an easy thing to do. He's not looking for any special recipe or words. He's just looking for a sincere heart to accept what he said is true. Let's finish there. We'll stand and we'll pray and we'll go away tonight. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord. As we look at what you did for us, Lord, we are humbled. We are thankful. And we, again, once again, take you and claim you to be the Savior we need. We put our trust and our faith in you, Lord. Like we sang, we're going to follow you. No turning back, Lord. We love you, and we pray this in your name. Amen.